The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The message the Lord has given me is entitled, Provoked to Pray. Provoked to Pray. Mighty God, there's a work that needs to be done in each of our hearts that can only be done by your Holy Spirit. For Lord, we're a people who have much information but little conviction. Lord, tonight would you come and would you continue the process or begin the process of provoking our lives that we would come and cry out to you, that we would pray. Lord, teach me to pray. Make me clean as I speak this word that it will be from your spirit and from the heart of Jesus. Lord, let me step back now and not be seen, but Lord, would you be seen in all of your glory and your majesty. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. It was during the time of the judges, and every man did as he saw fit. And so there were continual rebellions against Almighty God. People would have the stiff persecution of the Moabites or the Amorites or someone else who would come down on them and would strip out all of the wealth that God had poured in because of their disobedience. And then they would begin to cry out to God. They would plead with God for a deliverer. And after God could no longer stand the sound of their cry, when he was sufficiently provoked, he would answer their cry. And then for maybe 40 years, they would have peace. But as soon as that man or woman passed, the cycle would begin all over again. The prosperity would begin to flow because God's presence was flowing. And then it would be taken for granted. And then people would begin to rebel and step into their own desires once more. And now they had no need to pray because they'd been delivered. And they were living in luxury. So why pray? It's true. We only pray when we have to pray. We could hold seminars and classes on how to pray. We could teach eloquently on it, telling wonderful, funny stories and entertaining you, and you'd go home and not pray unless you have to pray. God is a specialist in provoking us to pray, in shaping circumstances such that either we pray or die. That's why I continually, day by day, in my private prayer life, pray for you. I pray that God will comfort you. Do you know what it means? To comfort you means to pray that God will bring all the pain out of your life. I pray that God will make your life a lot more miserable and a lot worse until finally you're crying out to him that he'll break the lie of our culture. You realize tonight, if you were in the Sudan, yeah. or if you were in Saudi Arabia, yeah. 
If you were in China, you would not be allowed to sit in this room and sing songs of praise and worship to the Almighty God. You would be cast into prison. You would be killed. You would be tortured. And we call that persecution. And we say, we don't have any persecution in America. We have persecution in America that is more powerful and more destructive than anything possible in China. You know what the persecution is here? The persecution here is money and prosperity and the ability to do whatever we want to do for ourselves so we don't need God. It's comfortableness. And the prison of comfortableness prevents us from bearing testimony that Jesus is Lord. Our comfortableness, our luxury, soothes us to sleep, so there is no need to be a brotherhood of fellowship. You know what koinonia means? Literally, it means leaning against each other, because if we don't lean against each other, we're going to fall. We're in a prison that causes us to not need to lean against each other. In fact, if Jesus began to try to cause us to lean one against another, we'd think we were being hard-pressed by the devil. Anything that would dare interfere with our gilded prison would be viewed as straight from hell. That's why we don't pray. We don't need to pray. We've got it all covered. You've got a medical problem? Go to the doctor. You've got a financial problem? Go to the bank. You lose a job? Get another one. What do we need God for? You have a mental problem? Go to a psychiatrist. Get some drugs. What do we need God for? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a doctor. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to financial counseling. Do you hear my heart? When we don't need God, we're not going to ask God to come and do anything. Now, the great gift of God that I would guess none of you have been asking him for with any degree of sincerity. The great gift of God is barrenness. The great gift of God is barrenness. Because as he begins to bring us into barrenness, we sense our desperate need and we have to begin to cry out because we are so provoked by our barrenness. Now, it may not be barrenness in money and finances, but it could be. But barrenness in friendship, barrenness in, in family, barrenness with our children or with our parents, barrenness in those places that we have come to settle into for our security. As God begins to bring barrenness in those places, we're provoked sufficiently that finally we go into his presence and we begin to cry out to him. Now, sometimes 
there's a process of getting us there. Most people who begin to go in barrenness, hey, you know the adage, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Or fake it till you make it. You know, when barrenness begins to creep in, the first thing we do is say, okay, let's get a solution to the problem. This is not anything unusual. Let's find, join a new social club. Go to a health club. Go somewhere. Do something. God can't steer a parked car. And so off we go. That's usually the first response to barrenness. But if God deepens the famine, as he always is wont to do, the next thing we do is become angry. And we say, how could God treat me this way? And how could my family treat me this way? And, and how could this be happening to me? I don't deserve this. Look what I've done for God. Look what I've done for God. How could God treat me this way? This is unfair. And then we begin to cast ourselves as this noble victim. Yes. This noble victim. And we say, now we need a rescuer. We haven't even gotten to the place of barrenness yet we're willing to pray. And so in our anger, we can lash out at other people and we can become very bitter, very judgmental. Now, now hear me. I see this all the time as a pastor. Somebody says, Pastor, I've got to talk to you. I've got a problem with you. As soon as they say that, my spirit begins to rejoice. Do you know why my spirit begins to rejoice? Because I know God is dealing with their heart, and he's beginning to bring them into barrenness. And I say, on my prayer closet, in my private place, I say, oh God, stir them up more. <laughs> stir them up more. Cause them to feel their barrenness so that finally they'll break through and they'll come into the prayer closet and they'll get on their face before you and they'll repent of their sin. You anywhere in this process? And sometimes people come to me and they'll read me the riot act. My response used to be, oh, Lord, how could I be so bad? I might as well go eat worms. I'm a bad pastor. I'm not pleasing everybody. Now I take it as a wonderful gift of the Spirit and say, Jesus, you love this person so much. You poured your life out for this person, and you want this person to come to an end of themselves, and you're going to take them all the way through. I always notice that the people God loves the most, he deals the most severely with. I mean, he deals with them. He takes their job. He takes their house. He, he takes the precious things in their life, and he crashes them. He takes their dreams and he crashes them. He takes all their hopes and desires and he crashes them. You know what he's doing? He's separating you out 
by yourself from the herd so he can provoke you enough to cause you to pray. Now this happened with a precious woman during the time of the judges. Elkanah was the husband. He had two wives, trouble. One wife had children, and Hannah had none. And in front of Elkanah, Panea was as sweet as pie. But behind the scenes, she was saying, you're worthless. You can't even have a child. Elkanah doesn't love you. It's impossible for him to love you when you can't give him a child. You shouldn't even be in this family. Oh, the words would flow. And this precious woman, Hannah, was heartbroken. Now, why should this be going on? Because the scriptures say God sealed up her womb. The devil didn't do it. God did it. God sealed up her womb so she couldn't have any kids. And God sent this ugly Panea to rip her heart apart. Why? Well, we think it's all about us. You know, my universe is the circle right around me. And what happens in this circle is more important than anything that happens in your circle. But God looks down and he says, wait a minute. I have a plan. And the plan means crushing that little circle around you. And he never asks, do you mind? <laughs> he just does it. So here's Peneus sent by God to torment Hannah, whose womb is sealed up by God. He got Hannah's attention. You see, God is in the process now of beginning to bring forth the salvation of Israel. And a man is needed, a special kind of man, not a temporary deliverer. What's needed is a prophet who can speak the word of God like a sharp razor, who, who would be a man whose every word would be true. No word would fall to the ground, but everything would come to pass that he spoke. But he has to have a vessel to birth this man-child. Hey, Hannah didn't volunteer for the job. She was chosen for the job. I can hear some of you now. You're saying, I didn't volunteer for this miserable job I'm in. I didn't volunteer for this sickness that's come upon me. I didn't volunteer for my family to desert me. Well, you don't have to volunteer. God volunteers you. 
because he has a plan. The question comes out of precious Mary's life. Gabriel comes to her and says to her, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. You're going to have a child. And her question is not, what do you mean? What's this going to do for me? Now, Mary's heart is different. Mary says, how can I cooperate? How can I participate with you, God? Do you see the difference? And so we come now, provoked by God, wombs dried up. Angry people attacking us and speaking bitterly against us, making our life hell on earth. And it's all God trying to get our attention to birth his will out of our lives for the salvation of the lost of Washington, D.C. And we think it's all about us having a happy life and feeling good about Didn't God know he was dealing with her very life? I mean, Hannah was not having a, a, a dress rehearsal. This was her life. These were out of the few short years that she would exist on the face of the earth. God didn't seem to mind. I hear some of you so boldly say, God, spend me any way you want to. Well, what if God decides he doesn't want to spend you at all, but wants to put you up on the shelf? Now, that's a different question, isn't it? You know, God, if I'm going to live my life here, at least I want to see something worthwhile out of it. You know, don't just put me up here on some dark shelf and desert me. But what if God has to set me up on that shelf and desert me in order to provoke me sufficiently to be willing to come to him and pray that his will could be accomplished in my life? Does God have to put you in solitary confinement to get your attention? Some, yes. Some of you, he just reaches out and rips that sin right out of your life, and you're saying, but I want my sin. He says, no, you're done with that. Give it to me. Some people say this foolish thing. They say, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He'll never force anybody. Boy, that's such a neat psychological gizmo. You know, talk to Noah about not being forced. Noah didn't volunteer. God chose him. You understand, all of Noah's life was centered around scooping manure in the ark. Hey, I wouldn't volunteer for that job, would you? Have you ever cared for a seasick animal? With no air conditioning? He didn't volunteer for that job. No wonder he got out of the ark and planted a vineyard and got drunk. I would have too. To understand God is in the business 
of coming and doing whatever is necessary, praise God he is, to do whatever is necessary to provoke us, to get us out of our lethargy, so that we'll come into the prayer closet and begin to get serious with him because he wants to bring about salvation. Some of you just go dream walking through life. And you have a few nightmares and you think, well, that's all right but you never wake up enough to know that it's God who's doing it and he's trying to get your attention because he wants to birth something out of your life for the salvation of this city. Are you willing to cooperate with him? Are you willing to lay your anger and your bitterness down? Are you willing to lay all your schemes of the flesh down and let him do in your life what he wants to do, even if it's scooping up manure in an ark? Are you willing to let him do that with you? Well, she was provoked. And this went on year after year after year after year. And she wept and she wept until there just weren't any dry tears left. And all she could do is continue to heave before God. Now her husband, watching all of this, says, Hannah, this is... 1 Samuel, the first chapter, the eighth verse. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Men just don't catch it sometimes. I admit, we don't get it. I mean, that's a very logical male speech. Now, sweetheart, don't I mean everything to you? But let me tell you what the Holy Spirit told me. This is not male stuff. This is woman stuff, and I haven't checked it with you, Jan. But I'm hearing the Holy Spirit say, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Yes, sweetheart. That's why I so desperately want to have a son, because I love you so much. Is that true, women? Is that how you would think? We come to a place in this walk where we love God so much that we can't stand to be barren anymore. We've walked so long in barrenness that we say, oh God, if, you, if we don't birth something for the kingdom of God, we're going to die. And some of you here tonight, you have been walking, being provoked, being exhausted, dead on your feet, and you have endured so much. And God has brought that to you. 
And now you're finally at a place where you're just crying out to God and saying, Oh, God, I don't want to leave your presence. I want to walk with you. My heart yearns for you, mighty God. Would you step in and would you just clear out this garbage that I've created in my life? Will you shovel it out of my life? And would you wash me and make me clean? And would you birth something out of this life so that this life will not be spent? worthlessly before your throne. Some of you have great visions and dreams of what you want to accomplish. Some of you want to preach the gospel of Jesus. Some of you want to be able to give large sums of money for the kingdom of God. Some of you want to be able to sing and worship God and, and lead praise and worship. Some of you want to be able to just lead individuals to Jesus Christ. Some of you want to go out and, and walk by a man crippled and he looks at you and you want to be able to say to him those wonderful words, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you. Stand up on your feet. I mean, you want to do wonderful things for God. That was the source of Hannah's pain. Now, pain comes for a lot of reasons, but the most exquisite pain is when you are not able, when you are unable to love the one you love by doing what you know they need to have done. The inability to cooperate in a way that produces the result that you know would please the heart of the Father. And you know the reason you can't do it is because of your own coldness of heart and, and love of the world and unconsciousness. Because you know you have walked in the way of darkness for so long and you don't know how to walk in the way of faith. And you're saying, oh God, I can't walk this darkness anymore. I have to walk in the light. I have to walk. I have to know you're there. That's the exquisite pain. Sometimes, like with Hiram Judson, God has to just lay you on the sick bed. He has to put you in isolation so that finally that desperate plea to be used can be quieted enough for God to begin to tell you how he wants to use you. You see, in my heart, I still want to tell God how I can be useful to him. I don't need to be somebody. I just want to be in charge of telling God how to use me. You don't want to do that, do you? And my deal is usually, God, use me in a way that will not embarrass me. Use me in a way that will let me remain with my dignity intact. 
Use me in a way that people will look at me and say, there's a wonderful, spiritual, godly man. And then God comes along like he did in Reese Howell's life. And he says, give your ministry to another man and withdraw from the chapel. What? And everybody's gossiping and saying, what happened to Reese Howells? Look how he's had to withdraw. He must have been disappointed by God. And God says, pull back, withdraw. What do you mean pull back and withdraw? Well, God always likes to operate by breathing in and then breathing out. He was, God was just taking a deep breath and he was pulling Reese Howells right into his very heart before he breathed him out into Africa and revival. But you see, this is a provocation in my spirit. For constantly, I have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't have the blueprint, and I don't know how you want to use me, and I don't know how you want to use the National Prayer Chapel, and I don't know how you want to use springs of living water, and it's okay that I don't know. Whatever you want to do, just go ahead and do it. And if it embarrasses me, that's all right. If it makes me look bad, if it makes me look, as we said today on the broadcast, if it makes me look like the garbage of the world, do it. That's where Hannah finally came. They're in Shiloh. They're at the temple. She gets away from the family. They're almost ready to leave, and she gets away from the family, and she comes, and she just begins to pour out her hurt before God. She begins to pour out her heart. She begins to just cry out to God, not out loud, not for public show. This was not a deal about anybody else seeing or hearing or knowing. And even in that moment, God uses Eli to rebuke her and say, stop your alcohol consumption. You're drunk. Even at the most holy time in her life, as she is before God at Shiloh, she is pouring out her heart to God. Here's Eli lounging back on a chair at the doorpost, filling himself with his filet mignon, living a life of luxury. God tried to provoke Eli, and it was impossible to provoke him. All he would say is, whatever you want, God, do it. Go ahead, God, do it. I mean, he was a big blob of nothing. You couldn't provoke the man. He was the doughboy. You know, punch him all you want to punch him. Comes right back to form. God couldn't use the doughboy. He wanted to use Samuel, though. So now... Hannah is rebuked by Eli for being drunk. And she says, oh, no, my Lord. I'm not drunk. I'm crying out to God. And true to form, he says, I mean, he's the pastor of blessings. You know, the doughboy blesses everybody. 
makes the circle through the congregation and pats everybody on the head and says, how are you, dear sister? Be blessed. So he does this to her and says, your request is filled. Go on home. It's going to work. Well, how many people has he said that to? I mean, that's his standard line. But she's been provoked sufficiently that she believes it. But there's another factor we need to look at. I want you to hear this prayer. This is 1 Samuel, the first chapter, verse 11. Now, this is in bitterness of soul. This is in anguish of spirit. She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty. I need to stop for just a minute. The word Almighty in the Hebrew is Sabbath. It's a military term. She knew that she was speaking not to a sergeant or to a captain. She knew she was speaking to the executive commander, the commander-in-chief. And she addressed him as, O Lord, that is, the supreme name of God. And then she adds to that name, Sabbath, meaning, you are the God who when you answer, I enter into your rest. If you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and do not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now what has she done? The reason we're looking at this story tonight is that the Lord has asked me to deal with a question of answered prayer. When does God answer prayer? And what do the prayers look like when they're answered? One of the keys is found here. She is crying out to the Lord and she is saying, Lord God, I need, I desperately need this son. But if you'll give me this son, I'll give him back to you. In other words, Lord God, I need a son for comfort in my old age. And God doesn't hear the prayer. Oh God, I need a son so that I can be equal to Panea. God doesn't hear. You enter into the Sabbath rest of God when you pray and you say, Almighty God, this is what I need. And I give it right back to you. It's not for my consumption. It's not for my glory. It's not for my need. It's for your need, almighty God. Now, do you understand? When you come into the prayer closet and you begin to press into God, if you are praying with the right motive, he will hear your prayer. That's what James tells us. 
But if you're praying this prayer in order to consume it in your own lust, God will not hear your prayer. But if as you pray, you come into his presence and you say, Almighty God, I'm praying this to give to you. Now, this was a very dangerous prayer because she knew Eli was a wicked man. And she knew that she would be giving this son into the hand of a wicked man. She was not concerned because she was addressing Almighty God, Sabbath God, the God who is the commander-in-chief who rules over. She had finally come to the conclusion that Almighty God was the only one she needed to fear. She did not need to fear Panea, and she did not need to fear Eli's accusations. I tell you, there are no more painful accusations than can come from a religious figure in our lives. That condemnation rolled right on over past her like water off a duck's back. She knew she was addressing the commander-in-chief. And what some sergeant said didn't have any weight in the matter. She was dealing with the general. And we're going to close here tonight. We're going to continue this message on Sunday. But I want to tell you what I'm hearing the Spirit of the living God say to the National Prayer Chapel. I am finding every way possible to provoke you and to cause you to know that I have called you for the salvation of men and women. Will you go into your prayer closet and will you plead for the lost of this city? Will you forget about yourself? And will you pray for this city? And will you give it back to me? And so all this week, I've been on my face before God. I've been pleading for God to break out with revival in Washington, D.C. And I have made a vow with the Lord God of heaven that if he will bring revival to this city, I give it all back to God. I won't be in charge of it. I won't direct it. I won't think it's mine. I won't think it's because of my preaching or my teaching. I won't think it's because of my skill or my lack of skill. It will simply be the humble servants of God in this city, in this church, and in other churches hidden away in this city who are trusting in Almighty God, who've come under the blood, who no longer want to play games with God, but who are crying out for salvation for this city. And when God steps in, he's going to do what he wants, his way. And I have vowed before the mighty God of heaven to not touch his glory, to not merchandise it with T-shirts, 
to not merchandise it with tapes, with coffee cups, but to humbly bow before the Lord and say, have your way. Have you been provoked enough yet to pray? Or are you held in irons, prison bars of comfort and ease? Are you held in the prison bars of theological expertise and knowledge? You can explain it all, but oh, to go into the throne room of God and address the Lord Almighty. That's another deal. Tonight God has called you or you wouldn't be here. He's promised us 120. We're waiting on him for those 120 to pray for revival in this city. Will you pray? Will you allow God to separate your life out and pray? Almighty God, I ask tonight for your mercy, for your grace, I ask for the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Flow, mighty God of heaven, and bring to pass all that you desire without regard to the cost for me or any person in this room. Lord, whatever is necessary, would you do it? Let your will be done in the city of Washington. Let your will be accomplished on earth, even as it is in heaven. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we're praying for this city. Looking down from the hill. Praying for revival here. Oh, let our hearts be filled. For the people of this city, Lord. United we will stand. By your loving grace and mercy. Holy Spirit, fill this land. Let revival come. Let revival come. Let revival come. Let revival come to this city. To this city. As summer turns to winter Every season brings a 
salvation, your eternal hope of life. This revival song of heaven, in the name of Jesus Christ. Let revival come. Let revival come. Let revival come to this city. Pray that Jesus has met you as you've listened to today's broadcast of Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com or write to us at Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. God bless you. We love you. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O See